Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I'd like to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 2. We've been in a series for the last several months in the Gospel of John, but this morning we're going to break from that series, because today is a special occasion in the life of our church. We'll be baptizing five individuals, Rob and Diane Pruitt, Charlie and Jasmine Hall, and Shelby Kephart. And on this occasion of their baptism, I wanted to preach a topical message. Uh, This morning, in view of these baptisms, I want to preach a very simple message on a very simple question that the smallest child might ask. And that is, what is a Christian? What do we believe is true of these individuals being baptized and indeed everyone who is a true Christian? So we're going to start in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll reference some other texts along the way, but we'll start here in Ephesians 2. So let me ask that you follow along as I read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me ask that we pray once more. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to come before your word now. We pray that as we consider what your word teaches about what Christians are, about who Christians are, we pray, Father, for every true Christian here, you would refresh them in what you have made them to be, and that we would come to deeper levels of gratitude and love toward you. Uh, for what you have done for us and your Son, the Lord Jesus. Please, Father, come and bless this time. Make it useful for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is a Christian? There are lots of ways one might answer that question. I'm going to offer four simple answers that the Bible gives. So four biblical answers to the question, what is a Christian? And the first is this. A Christian is a sinner saved by the grace of God. A Christian is a sinner saved by the grace of God. And this comes out quite plainly in the passage I've asked you to turn to in Ephesians 2. Uh, Paul starts in the first three verses of Ephesians 2 by characterizing the natural state of men and women who are born in sin. Uh, Paul's understanding of human nature is that we are all born dead in sin. And it really only gets worse from there. Uh, Paul talks about 
uh, following the course of this world and uh, following the prince of the power of the air, living out in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, being by nature children of wrath. That is the status quo for every individual in this room. We are born dead in sin, uh, not mostly dead, not on life support, but totally dead in sin, unable to save ourselves, unable to choose God, unable to do what is right. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The human heart by nature is not neutral. In another place that we considered in John 3, uh, there we read that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We are born into the world with a predisposition to sin, uh, to be lovers of self and haters of God. By nature, we are each born dead in sin. And that's not different for the Christian. Uh, Paul's writing to Christians, and he says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That was the status quo for you, dead in trespasses and sins. But then notice, beginning in verse 4, Paul begins to emphasize the unilateral activity of God in saving the sinner. So you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were by nature children of wrath. Then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's Paul's emphasis here? It's on the unilateral activity of God in salvation. You were dead in sin, you were living in immorality and in the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body and of the mind, but then God did something. God himself, moved by mercy, moved by love, moved by grace and compassion, took the initiative with you. And he of his own grace did something in you and with you and through you to make you alive. You were dead, but then God acted. God interposed, God intervened, God initiated. And therefore salvation is to be understood purely as the result of the unilateral activity of God in saving a sinner by his grace. And that, of course, is what is emphasized next. In verses 8 through 10, we see there that the foundation of salvation is only the grace of God. We read verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, Paul could have stopped there. He's made his point. The foundation of salvation is the grace of God. But notice the pains he takes to emphasize this point, to accent this point, accentuate this point. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Like, like he wants us to get this. Salvation is all of grace. Now, now, children, you understand what grace is when I use that word. We use that word a lot in church. That word comes up in a lot of our songs, the word grace. What do we mean by that word? Grace essentially means unearned favor, unearned blessing. So think of it this way, kids. If, if you... Uh, let's say it's the fall, and uh, the leaves have fallen, they're covering my front yard, and I don't particularly like raking the leaves, 
And so I decide, I'm going to have, I'm going to see if there's a kid in the church who can come over and rake my leaves for me. And I offer to pay you $20 to rake my leaves. Come to my house, rake my leaves, and I will give you $20. And so you do that. You come to my house, your parents drop you off, you rake up the leaves, you come to my front door, you say, Mr. DePrima, I've done the job, and then I give you the $20. Okay, now that is not grace. That's payment for a job well done. You did the job, you did the work, you earned the $20, and I gave you the $20. That's not grace. But imagine another scenario. Imagine that I just came up to you this morning and I just handed you a $20 bill. And by the way, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But suppose that I did. And I I gave you the $20 bill. I said, I wanted to give this to you as a gift. That would be an example of grace. See, that's unearned blessing, unearned favor. You didn't do anything to earn the $20. It was just given to you. It It was a gracious gift. Well, on a much larger and grander scale, that's what Paul's saying in this text. Our salvation was not something we earned. It was not the um, uh, reward or the prize of a job well done. Rather, our salvation is understood to be purely by the grace of God. All we bring to the table is our sin. God brings his grace and his mercy and his love, and he makes us to be alive together with Christ. Our works, our merits are not allowed to come into play when it comes to our salvation. Paul wants to make clear the salvation of sinners is purely and totally and only by the grace of God. Now you might say, someone here might say, I thought Christians were supposed to be engaged in good works, were even to be known by their good works. After all, that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We're to carry on these good works be like the salt of the earth, the light of the world. People are supposed to see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Uh, In Paul's letter to Titus, uh, at the very end of chapter 2, I think it is, he says that we're to be a people who are zealous for good works. It's definitely true. Good works are to mark the Christian's life. You'd be absolutely right if you made that statement. But listen, here in Ephesians 2, this is where grammar Uh, comes into play. Think back on grammar class and think back particularly on prepositions. The prepositions are so important in this passage. Notice, we are saved, verse 8, by grace. Verse 9 essentially says it's not by works or not as a result of works, not by works. So we're not saved by works, but then verse 10 says we are saved for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by works, we're saved by grace, but we are saved for works. So one of the things we're saved to is a life of living out good works, practicing good works, being zealous for good works. We're not saved by works, we're saved for works, which means that our our works, our merits, our doings are not the root of our salvation, but the fruit. You see that? What's the root of our salvation? The unilateral activity of God. The unsurpassed grace of God, the unearned favor of God in raising sinners from death to life. That's the foundation of salvation. That's the root of salvation. The fruit is people who have been changed by God's spirit and now live for good works, which God prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. So vital, you here who are young Christians, to appreciate that. You are not saved on the basis of your works, but you are saved for works. 
But what I want you to see is that salvation is all a matter of the grace of God. A Christian is a sinner saved by the grace of God. So you here today who are outside of Christ, you need to understand that we Christians here in this room are not right with God because of what we've done. We do not think that our good outweighs our bad. In fact, we're quite sure the opposite is true. We don't think that by coming to church and by living a good life, we're right with God. We are not good people who have earned heaven. We are sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. Sinners, just like you, saved purely, totally, and only by God's grace. Now, what do I mean by that language, to be saved? People use that language often. When I was 13 years old, I got saved. I got saved. I've been saved. What, what do we mean by that language? Well, to be saved is to be given salvation, to be forgiven of sin, to have your sins forgiven, and thereby escaping the just penalty due to your sins. Our sins are forgiven. It's one of my favorite descriptions of a Christian, especially to someone who might have reason to believe that Christians are self-righteous. Someone asks, what does it mean that you're a Christian? I like to answer, it means that I am a man whose sins have been forgiven. That's who we are as Christians. I love David's words in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Don't you love the words of that hymn we sing here? And we sing it so beautifully. It is well with my soul. You know that line, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Like I'm not here because I'm a good person. I'm here because I'm a forgiven sinner. So to be saved means to be forgiven your sins and, and thereby to be delivered from death and judgment. Uh, Christians are saved from the wrath to come. The just penalty due to sin, they are saved from by the grace of God. And, and what's more than that, we're actually said, the Bible tells us, to be justified in God's sight. Which means we're, we're reckoned right with God in his courtroom. He counts us as right with him, justified with him. And, and we sometimes say this, that, you know, that the verdict is that we're not guilty. And I understand why people use that language. You know, they say, in God's courtroom, we're rendered not guilty. I get that. It's not the best way to speak about it if we're speaking in the Bible's terms. In justification, it's not that we're rendered not guilty exactly. It's that we're rendered forgiven. It's that we're pardoned. Oh, the, the guilt was there, but the debt has been paid. It's not like God's eyes are somehow blinded to uh, our record by some sleight of hand trick. No, he sees our sins, but he sees that whatever debt we owed has been paid in Jesus Christ, and thereby the ruling in the courtroom is that we're justified. We're pardoned sinners. We're forgiven. The debt is paid. There's no outstanding debt for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we could say more that to be saved means we're given eternal life. Justified in God's sight. It's not just that we escape the wrath of God and the judgment to come. We actually are given eternal life, an eternity of knowing God and living with him in sinless paradise. 
That's what it means to be saved, to have your sins forgiven, to be delivered from death and judgment, to be made right in God's eyes, and to be given eternal life with Him forever. And all of this is ours as a result of the unmerited grace of God. A Christian is a sinner saved by the grace of God. All right, now the second biblical answer we can give. Second answer we can give. Christian is a sinner saved by the grace of God. Secondly, a Christian is a new creature in Christ. A Christian is a new creature in Christ. You just listen as I read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I don't think this point is emphasized enough. You see, to become a Christian is to undergo a fundamental change. There is something you have ceased to be, and there is something new that you have become. It's so radical a change that the Bible describes it in John 3 as new birth. There Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about how to enter the kingdom of God, and he says, you can't do it unless you've been born again. Like, like born anew. It's so radical and fundamental a change that, that is undergone in the human person and in the human heart that the analogy Jesus uses is new birth. And through this new birth, your affections are changed, your desires are changed, your very will is changed. Where once there was darkness, now there's light. Where once there was selfishness, now there's love for others. Where once there was love of sin, now there's love for Christ. Where once there was immorality, now there's discipleship. Where once there was idolatry, now there's God. Everything has changed for the Christian. Because the Christian is fundamentally a new creature in Christ Jesus. There is something he or she has ceased to be. There's something that's old, that's gone now, that's passed away. And he or she has become something new. The new has come. It's troubling to me sometimes people talk about becoming Christians or converting to Christianity like it's just sort of a casual decision you make. I, I decided that I should become a Christian. Why not? You know, you know like, like, I decided to cut red meat out of my diet. Just become a Christian. That's not the biblical understanding of conversion. It's not a casual change of mind. And, and I'll say this too. Uh, biblical conversion, the Bible's understanding of conversion and new birth and regeneration, it's far more radical a thing, far more essential a thing than it is in any other religion like converting to Islam or converting to Buddhism. Like you can decide tomorrow, I'm just going to start living like a Buddhist. I'm going to embrace Buddhist teaching and, and live that way. And you don't have to undergo any fundamental change in your being. Certainly you don't have to undergo something as radical as new birth in order to become a Buddhist. But see, in Christianity, the conversion process is so radical, it's called new birth, even regeneration. It's a total change of the human heart. Affections, passions, desires, will, it's all different now. It's not a casual decision to become a Christian. It's not just sort of embracing a few new teachings or adding something on to your life. A Christian see is one who has been changed by the supernatural activity of the spirit of the living God. 
is to become a new creature entirely. This understanding of conversion must be recovered. A Christian is altogether a new creature in Christ. There's something I have ceased to be and something new that I've become, and it's a wonderful thing. Whatever was true before, whatever you were before, it's all changed now. It's all changed if you've been born again. Well, that's the second answer. Let's move on to a third answer we might give. So that a Christian is a sinner saved by the grace of God. A Christian is a new creature in Christ. And thirdly, a Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. If you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what is the original call to be disciples? When Jesus calls his disciples, his followers, what does he say? Follow me. Follow me. The call to Christ is a call to follow him. And I love, I can hardly wait to preach John 21 if we ever get there. When Peter has failed miserably and he's denied the Lord. And and then the Lord rises from the dead and he restores Peter. Beautiful passage in John 21. What's the last words he says to Peter? He says, Peter, follow me sort of recommissions him, says those same words he said at the beginning when he first called Peter to be his disciple, follow me. It's not something we do at the first and never think about again. It's rather everything about the Christian life. It's following after Jesus. Luke 9, verse 23, and Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 14, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't follow Jesus. I love Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, some of my favorite verses in the Bible. There we have this wonderful gospel invitation. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he gives a command, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You kids know what a yoke is? We, we, we don't see this much in our day, but if you lived in an agrarian society and you were to uh, have some oxen driving the plow or something like that, you might put a yoke over them, wooden sort of harness or something like that. And that yoke was put on the livestock in order to keep them down a particular path and to keep them on the straight and narrow to accomplish the work, accomplish the task that needs to be done. Well, Jesus says, when you become a Christian, when you come to him, he he puts his yoke on you so that you can stay on the proper path, so that you won't stray to the right and to the left. So basically, you could follow him and learn from him and grow as his disciple. It's an image that's trying to get at this idea of what it's like to follow Jesus, and Jesus promises that his yoke is easy, his burden's light. He's gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's, It's quite a contrast. He says, come, those who labor and are heavy laden. He takes that burden from us, and he gives us the light burden of his yoke, whereby we follow him and are led in the paths of salvation. 
We see here the call to Christ is a call to discipleship. It's a call to follow Jesus. It's a call to walk in His commands and to live according to His teachings. There simply is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't follow Jesus. I'm sorry, it's, it's just not a thing. Like there's no such thing as a dog who moves. It's just not a thing, Christian who doesn't follow Jesus. Uh, to say you're a Christian, but, but to not be a follower of Jesus, it's like, like two plus banana equals truck. It's just it's nonsense. It doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense at all. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't follow Jesus. No such thing as a, a Christian who is uninterested in the teachings of Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian who is indifferent to his master's will. Christians are by nature devoted to following the Lord Jesus. Listen, we need to return to an understanding of the Christian life that views following Jesus as fundamental, not exceptional, as basic, not advanced, as 101, not 401, as required, not optional, as the very essence of the Christian life, not an added corollary. A Christian is by definition a follower of Jesus, a servant of the master, a Christ follower. It doesn't get more basic than that. And there's even a sense in which we who are Christians, it's appropriate that we're just sort of obsessed with Christ, just obsessed with Him. That's true. I'm not trying to sound trite or something like that. We're obsessed with Jesus. We're fanatics over Jesus. We hang on His every word. We're devoted to His teachings. He defines our lives. Everything is about following Jesus, and everything in life only has purpose insofar as it is related to Jesus. We're obsessed with Jesus. You know, that idea of fanaticism, normally that has sort of a negative connotation to it, or we kind of laugh at fanaticism to be a fan, to be a fanatic, right? So, so what's something I've been fanatical about in my life? So when I was in high school and college, I was a fan, I was a fanatic of the Dave Matthews Band. And I would be embarrassed to tally up how much money I have spent in support of that band. I, CDs, DVDs, concerts. I learned every single song he ever wrote on the guitar and, and he's got like a thousand songs. I mean, just obsessed with the Dave Matthews Band. I can remember when I first saw Dave Matthews. It was September 19th, 2007. I went to a show in Charlotte to see him there. And I could even remember driving on the way over there and thinking, you know what, we're gonna get in a car accident. There's no way I'll actually see Dave Matthews Band in the flesh. Something's gonna go wrong. And I can remember getting to the venue like hours, hours early and thinking, you know what, he's going to be sick or something like that, or have bronchitis or laryngitis or something, not be able to come out here and sing. There's no way I'm actually going to see him. And I remember he actually walked out on stage simply to introduce the warm-up group, and like there were chills running down my spine, you know, just couldn't believe it. There he was in the flesh. And then when it actually came time for him to sing uh, the, uh, the opening track, the song was A Dream So Real. That's, that's an unreleased track. That song stinks, Okay. But I screamed like I was a 14-year-old girl at a Beatles concert in the 1960s, as if the Beatles just launched into Hey Jude or something like that. I mean, I was just obsessed, hanging on every word, every single note that he might play. Now, why are you all laughing? Why is that humorous to you? 
Well, it's silly, isn't it? To, to be a fanatic over something like a band? To be so obsessed with someone like that? What? No object is really worthy of that kind of fanaticism. It's silly. But see, it ceases to be silly when Jesus is the object. We are obsessed with him. We are fanatics about Jesus. We're devoted to following him. We're, we, we hang on his every word. We want to know the very details of what he has to say to us in the word. We talk to him. We live alongside him. All of our relationships only have meaning insofar as they're related to him. Everything about Jesus matters to us. And see, Jesus is the only object that can hold our devotion and attention and worship and adoration and our intellects and all of our resources. He can hold all of that and not disappoint to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ, to be completely sold out and devoted to following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a third answer we might give. So we've seen a Christian is a sinner saved by the grace of God, a Christian is a new creature in Christ, a Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ, and fourthly and finally, a Christian is a child of God. A Christian is a child of God. I'll just read two texts to you, Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 1 John 3, verses 1 through 2 See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. There are a few must-read books for Christians other than the Bible, like if you walk with Christ for 10 years, 20 years, there are a few must-read books. We recommend books all the time at this church, and apparently from the latest report I got about the bookstall, uh, you all are buying lots of books, which is very gratifying. Uh, but rarely when, when I or one of the other pastors recommend a book do we say it's a must-read book. Okay, the book I'm about to mention is a must-read book. That book is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And in that book, Packer makes the case that the absolute pinnacle of blessing for the Christian is found in his or her adoption as a son or daughter of God. He just argues that there's simply no greater blessing. That is as good as it gets. So he writes this. What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Listen, closeness, affection, and generosity 
are at the heart of the relationship. Isn't that wonderful? Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Now listen, God might have simply saved us in some judicial sense. Like, like he might have pronounced us as justified in his court, pardoned all of our sins, and that could be the sum of the matter, and that would be wonderful. I'm, I'm not trying to be um, uh, uh, cheeky about that. It's a wonderful thing that God has made us right in his courtroom. But let me, let me sort of pick on sort of our Reformed theology for a second. Reformed people are fixated on the doctrine of justification. And sometimes we can talk about it as though it's the highest blessing the gospel offers. It is a very great blessing. I mean, I, 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 even saying that, it's almost silly. It's, it's a wonderful blessing. But it's not the greatest blessing to be made right with God in his courtroom. Listen, our, our Christian lives are impoverished. If, if that is sort of the ceiling on how high our understanding of our salvation grows. It gets better than that. We can go higher than that. See, God does not only justify us in his courtroom, pardon our sins, and pronounce us right with him in some sort of judicial sense, forensic sense. He actually adopts us into his family and makes us his own children. You see, justification is it's forensic. It, it can be somewhat cold. He's the judge, I'm the one on trial, he pronounces me right, and I could go my merry way. But see, it, adoption doesn't allow for that. Right? Packer's words, closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of this image. Warmth, tenderness, father, child, affection, love. I think Packer's right. This is the greatest of the gospel's blessings to be actually adopted by God as sons and daughters. But Packer goes on to say more. Adoption is not just the best of the gospel's blessings. Packer argues that this concept of adoption, of being God's child, should be the most fundamental aspect of the Christian's self-identity. Like our frame of reference, how we think about ourselves, adoption is the prevailing motif, picture, that the Bible uses. So Packer writes this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. I'll just stop there for a second. You, you who are being baptized haven't forgotten about you. Rob and Diane and Charlie and Jasmine and Shelby, do you think much about this, of being God's child and having God as Father. Packer goes on to say, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls our worship and prayers and our whole outlook on life, it means that we do not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Packer's just on a roll here. He doesn't stop. He says this, the revelation to the believer that God is his Father is in a sense the climax of the Bible. It's an amazing statement. 
Like, this is as good as it gets. My mind can go no higher than this, the thought that I am a child of the living God, that, that, that he has given me this name for him, Father. Which is the pinnacle of blessing. It's the top of the mountain to be considered children of God. So I ask you, Christian, is this how you think of God? It's how he wants you to think of him. As father. This father-son, father-daughter relationship is to pervade your self-awareness. And it is to engender security and safety and affection and warmth and trust. I have God as my father. He looks on me as his child. What could be more wonderful than that? What is a Christian? A Christian is a sinner saved by the grace of God. A Christian is a new creature in Christ. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. A Christian is a child of God. I'll just close with these words. I hope you can see in that outline the emphasis is on what God has done. You could describe a Christian by the activities he or she carries on, but the richest answers really center on what God has done because we believe salvation from beginning to end is an act of God. God has saved sinners by his own grace. God has caused sinners to be born again and to be new creatures in Christ Jesus. God is the one who changes people such that they become followers of Jesus Christ. God is the one who adopts and brings us into his family. So what I want you to see here, especially those of you who are not Christians, you just have to know this about us. No one here is better than anyone else. Like, we don't think our good outweighs our bad. We don't believe we're holier than thou. We're just sinners saved by the grace of God. We depend every day on the very same grace that we commend to you. We're, 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 we're not better than you. We've been saved by God's grace, changed by his mercy and his love and his power, been adopted as his children. And what's so wonderful is he is willing to extend that blessing to everyone who comes to him in faith and repentance. Everyone who looks to him as a savior and says, look, I want my sins pardoned. I want to be right with God. I want to be saved and transformed by his grace. I urge you, these blessings can be yours. Go to God. Cry out to his son, the Lord Jesus. Heed the call that, that we read a moment ago. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Do you want to know what it's like to be a new creature? To have your affections and your desires changed? Do you want to know what it would be like to become a lover of the light rather than darkness? Do you want to know what it would like to be, to be a follower of Jesus and to be a child of God? Well, all of those blessings are offered to you in the gospel. If you would repent of your sins, turn away from them, and cry out to God in faith, trusting his son, the Lord Jesus, to be a savior for your sins, 
believing the good news that God has sent his own son uh, to be born as a man and to live a sinless life, to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised according to the scriptures and to be seated at the right hand of God the Father where he now stands as a savior for sinners, arms spread wide to receive all those who come to him. If you believe that message, you will be saved. and You too will become God's child. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would make these promises of the gospel sweeter to us now than they've ever been. And as we taste of their sweetness, may it cause us to live with a greater devotion to you. May it cause us to follow more faithfully after you as those who have been saved by your grace, been made new in Christ, become children of the living God. Oh Lord, make the gospel sweet to every person in this room today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.